Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11 a.m. If you want to get in touch, the text number is 086-1800-658. Now, the row about changes to the operations of Navin Hospital continues this morning. As you know, the phased closure of the emergency department at Navin Hospital has led to fears that nearby hospitals such as Blanchettstown, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda and Mullingar will be overrun with patients on trolleys. Now, uh, we did interview Jerry McEntee yesterday and he stressed with emphasis that the emergency department is not actually being closed. It's just going to handle less, but that reserve will go elsewhere. Well, we spoke to Navin Man. Pader Tobin, he's the leader of the Aintu Party. He represents Mead West in the Oireachtas. He's in Washington, D.C. at present with an Oireachtas committee on the Good Friday Agreement, and they are in talks with U.S. officials uh, expressing their concerns over the potential implications of plans by the British to bin the Northern Ireland Protocol. And when I spoke to Pader Tobin in Washington, D.C. yesterday, the first question I asked him was, what is his reaction to the proposed plans? Well, my reaction very simply is one of absolute anger uh, in relation to the decision uh, by the HSC. I think that the decision was a disgraceful decision and it's a dangerous decision. Um, it's incredible, too, that the HSC actually put out a statement while the TDs were in the meeting, uh, which stated that the uh, plan was going to be implemented by the 30th of June. Uh, I know they had to withdraw that statement um, soon after, um, and the minister has corrected that. Um, but it shows that the HSE are gung-ho now in closing the A&E in Navin. And, you know, I, I was there representing the Save Navin Hospital campaign as its chair. And, you know, I put a, a number of very serious, serious questions to the HSE, and they didn't have the answers. The presentations that they made in relation to the hospital never mentioned the fact that we are in record waiting times in hospital A&Es at all. Indeed, the minister two weeks ago admitted that it was unacceptable that people are waiting up to 12 hours for A&E admission at the moment. They never mentioned capacity in the system. They never mentioned the record waiting lists that there are in hospitals either. And we must remember that there are nearly a million people on hospital waiting lists. And actually, A&E overcrowding increases hospital waiting lists because when an A&E is overcrowded, they have to shut down elective surgery. 
uh, and it means that those waiting lists get longer uh, when that actually happens. And incredibly, like just in Navin, you know, a, a number of months ago in the winter, we had, emer- we had surgery um, in Navin actually stopped because of the fact that the A&E in Navin was overcrowded. So here they are oh, uh, closing down a, a hospital that is regularly experiencing overcrowding itself uh, and uh, closing down that A&E and pushing people uh, into a hospital group um, that's not able to cope. And indeed, I also raised the issue, and this is research that I've done. There was 105,000 adverse incidents last year uh, right across the hospitals in this state. Um, now, some of those uh, were deaths. Some of those uh, were people who were incapacitated or made disabled due to mistakes in hospitals. And we know from research that mistakes happen in hospitals when, when uh, staff are really, really under pressure, when they're uh, in, 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 in great difficulty in providing the service. Uh, and we also know that our group, the Ireland East group, has a lower rate of increase in adverse incidents than the hospitals the HSE are pushing us into. Okay, but just let me take you up on that point, though. Um, I spoke to a clinical director for Our Ladies Hospital, Navin, Jerry McEntee, yesterday, and the point he was making was that the expertise now is in Drogheda, the up-to-date machinery is in Drogheda, the facilities are better in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, and that Mullingar and Blanchestown are equally capable of dealing with such issues in uh, a high-level output uh, capacity. But the point he was making was, isn't it better to have people going to hospitals where the expertise is there, whereas in Navin there isn't as much expertise? Well, I I hate to say this, but I am so amazed at how divorced from reality senior HSC management are. Uh, Because right now, for most people that go to Drada, they're waiting 12 hours to gain access into the A&E in Drogheda. Indeed, they also wanted to push us towards Conley. The staff of Conley were on a picket just before Christmas in relation to the overcrowding conditions that they're working in. And it, it is it incredible that the, the framework, the context of people's experience with A&Es across the country is absolutely absent from any of the analysis that the HSE are giving on this. It is like it doesn't exist. And, you know, they're talking about putting in an MAU into, into uh, NAV instead of the A&E. Now, let, like, this is incredible. They say that it will be a GP-referred MAU. So that means if you want to gain access, if you have an accident or if you, if you have an emergency and you're ill and you want to gain access to the MAU, you have to, first of all, have a GP, which are as rare as hen's teeth at the moment. And second of all, you have to get an appointment with a GP within working hours and, and, and for many people, it could take 5, 10, even 12 days now to get an appointment with a GP. And then that GP refers you to the MAU. Now, I know I was talking to a fellow yesterday who was seriously ill. And he rang a GP. And the GP said they would bring them back. He went to the A&E, got treatment, came home, was in bed that evening when the GP rang them back and said, listen, we'll slot you in in a week's time. So the plan that the HSC is, is devising for Meads it is completely divorced from the reality of people's experiences. And what's simply going to happen in this case is that we're going to load up more people on waiting times in Drada and Conley. And that can't happen. Um, you know, and, and do you know what? The, the ball is now in the government's court. Um, the Save Navin Hospital campaign will be organizing a large public rally. We'll have a public meeting uh, as well um, 
uh, on, uh, uh, coming up at the, at the end of June. Uh, we have a petition online on the Facebook page at the moment, and we're giving opportunity for people to express their anger and disgust at the steps that the government is taking in this. And, you know, we were even told yesterday by the HSE that, you know, Roscommon, you know, are, are happy with their lot after their A&E closed. Okay, I made but, a point. Yeah, but, I made a point. I just want to finish this. I, just, I, I made a point. There is no Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael TD in Roscommon. The people of Roscommon remembered the decisions that the governments have made in terms of their A&E. And it's really important that the government's TDs in this county, we have senior ministers in this county, that they stand up for the people of Meath and protect their health service. Okay, but just let me stop you there. Uh, we spoke to Damien English. He said this is not a done deal. The Minister for Health issued a statement saying that no formal decision has been made in relation to the HSE announcement. So at face value, there's no change. But what does this say about maybe bad management is the wrong choice of words, but the lack of communication between uh, the Department of Health and the HSE in terms of uh, policy whereby they're supposed to be working together and singing from the same hymn sheet? Well, first of all, bad management isn't the wrong choice of words. Bad management is the characteristic and nature of the HSE. And the problem in this country is that we have civil servants running the show. The executive power is in the hands of the government. The elected representatives of the people are not bystanders. They're not passengers in this bus. They should be driving the direction of our health service, but they're not. And that was clearly seen this week when we had a meeting organized by the minister who said this wasn't a done deal, while at the same time the HSE were giving a date for the actual closure of, of the A&E. And, you know, again, I put questions in relation to, you know, comparative analysis uh, with regards to Navin Hospital. How does Navin Hospital fare in terms of safety to other hospitals? None of the HSE had those answers. Indeed, heads of uh, hospital groups did not know the amount of adverse incidents that are happening in their areas. The really key issue here is we've got a great hospital and a great A&E we do need investments. We do need more consultants cover. And that's what, you know, the Save Navin Hospital campaign is calling for. Don't close it. Invest in it. Make it better and safer for the people of Mead. Okay. And, and as, I said, as I said this week as well to the Minister, Mead's population will soon be a quarter of a million people. You can't stand still in Navin at the moment for someone will build a house on top of you. Sure, but I have to come back to the point, uh, Pather, that Jerry McEntee made yesterday. If a member of your family was in an accident and you had a choice, you can go to Drogheda, where the best expertise in the region is based, or you can go to Navan, where there isn't as many experts, there isn't as, uh, as many advanced machines to, to deal with your issue. Wouldn't you prefer to have a member of your family going to the hospital that has the best? And in this case, it's Drogheda. Well, for years we have been told about these centres of excellence. But can we don't have centres of excellence. We have centres of trolleys. We had 560 people on trolleys in the middle of summer last week. We had the Matter Hospital, A&E, telling people not to come to it because it was overcrowded. This week we have Mullingar General Hospital telling people not to come to it because it's overcrowded. The fact that the HSC have these plans completely absent from the reality of people shows you that you know, it is time for these people to be investigated. Like, for example, I, I contacted HICWA, and I asked HICWA. HICWA is the body that's responsible for making sure that the health services run safely. I asked them, have they investigated any hospital in relation to the closure of A&Es beside them and the effect that has had on the safety of patients? 
They've said no. There has never been an investigation by the HSE or HICWA published in this state in relation to the effects of these closures are happening on people's health. And, you know, people that would be aware of University Hospital in Limerick, it is hammered from one end of the year to the other with regards to overcrowding. It's very simply why that happened. is because they closed okay. Nina A&E and they closed sure, N- sure. NS A&E. Sure, I'm aware and that's of that. our future. But if one was to look at the bigger, wider picture about Irish life at the moment, whether it's housing, hospitals or school places, isn't the reality that the population has grown exponentially in the last 20 years, but housing, hospital and schools infrastructure has not expanded accordingly? I, I would agree. I, I think there's, there's two things here. Um, there is a disaster of maladministration, first and foremost. Um, there's nobody being held to account in the civil service in terms of the decisions that they're making. There's no investigations or research being done in terms of um, the outcomes of their decisions. And let me tell you that we are calling for um, you know, investigations into the outcomes for patients as a result of decisions of closures of A&Es around the country. We want to highlight the damage that's being done. And absolutely, secondly, the, the population is significantly increasing. You know, the, when my dad was young, there were 60,000 people living in Mead. There were three hospitals in Navan. You know, when I was young, there was 100,000 people living in, in Mead. And now we're, we're 210,000 people living in the county. It's also, the truth be told, one of the fastest-growing local authority areas in terms of population, and that's going to continue on for the, for, for the next decade. The, the government has no foresight uh, in terms of this. And, and just one last point, if I can, and this is really critical. Remember, the government looked to close down this uh, on the basis of a plan that was written in 2013. The population difference in 2013 is massive. Also, they looked to close it down the, uh, on, in March 2020, just before COVID. There's five ICU beds in Navan. If they had to close down those five ICU beds, we would have had a serious crisis in terms of capacity in ICU. We know that ICU was the okay. front line of the COVID crisis. And, and, and we will be taken to the streets. And let, I want to put the government's TDs on warning in relation to this. I know some of them are fighting and doing their best in relation to this. But we need them all to stand up in terms of this, this hospital. In Roscommon, Dennis Nocton voted against... Uh, the government lost the whip. He stood up for the people that he represented. Um, and it's really, really clear now that the Meath TDs do the same. OK, just one final question, and very briefly, you're talking about another mass rally at the end of the month. What are you asking people to do? Well, first of all, we're asking people to come along to a, a, a public meeting in the Newgrange Hotel. Um, that public meeting will be a meeting that will, first of all, listen to people's concerns and anger as a result of what's happening um, in the county. Uh, it will also be an organising uh, public meeting. Um, it, will, it will be designed so that we will be able to mobilise people across the county. It will happen in the New Grange Hotel at 8pm on Thursday the 30th. Uh, and then shortly after, in, in the space of a fortnight after that, we will bring in excess of 10,000 people uh, onto the streets. And what I would, I'd ask people to do uh, is to contact my office to go to the Save Navin Hospital campaign Facebook page, leave their contact details so we can plug them into the campaign. People are members of, of football clubs, sporting clubs, unions, uh, work groups, churches. We need for every single civic society and community organization in the county now to start to leverage their organizations in putting pressure uh, on the government. We need to make sure that without a shadow of a doubt that this government knows that this decision would be a disaster for the people of Mead, and we're not going to accept it.
That's uh, Pather Tobin there, the leader of Aintu. He's also the chair of the Save Navin Hospital group there, speaking to me yesterday from Washington, D.C. And we should stress with emphasis again that the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, issued a statement to LMFM News yesterday. And what he said was that no decision regarding the HSE's proposal for the transition of the emergency department at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Navin has been agreed by this government. And indeed, that uh, position was repeated by Damien English. Now, we're going to be returning to this story a little bit later on. I'll be talking to uh, Dr. Mari Scully, who's a GP based in Navin, and we'll be getting, if you like... A feeling of how the GPs feel about what's being proposed because one of them is that when this medical assessment unit is established, uh, people can only get access uh, access to it uh, on the basis of a GP referral. So we're going to see how that may potentially work out. But we've more to come and we'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. Now, as you probably heard in the news, the European Commission will today take legal action against the UK government in connection with Boris Johnson's proposals in, if you like, planning to bit or bin or ditch the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. This is causing all sorts of consternation, particularly in the business community, but it also means that uh, there is uh, a legal limbo in the North at present because uh, the DUP are saying they are not going to go into the executive with Sinn Féin unless the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol is uh, binned. And uh, we're all waiting to see that if this piece of legislation does go through the House of Commons, will the DUP actually sit in the executive with Sinn Féin, arising from the outcome of the Assembly elections on May 5th last? Well, to get some assessment of how uh, nationalists and Republicans north of the border feel about this, I'm joined by Declan Carney, who is the chairperson of Sinn Féin. He's also an MLA, that's member of the Legislative Assembly for South Antrim. Uh, First of all, Declan, um, you know, Sinn Féin have had their battles with the British down through the decades. Uh, What's the feeling uh, within the nationalist and Republican community uh, over the behaviour of the British at present? There's a great deal of anger about what's happening at this particular point in time, but it goes far beyond the feelings of the Republican and the nationalist constituency in the North. I think that there's a a national and island-wide consensus uh, which views what the British government has done here as entirely reckless. Uh, It's uh, a a, a cynical uh, piece of behaviour by the British government. It is about undermining political stability and economic certainty. And, And it's a flagrant breach of international law. And international law matters. We're now seeing the latest iteration of an all-out assault against the Good Friday Agreement, being led by the British Tory party and also by the DUP at this point in time. And what's required is for the British government to step back from the brink, to engage directly with uh, the European Commission in good faith, uh, to resolve the outstanding issues, which we believe are entirely fixable, And for the DUP, as a matter of urgency in the midst of an unparalleled cost of living crisis, to get back into the power-sharing executive, along with Sinn Féin and all of the other parties. 
I suppose, Declan, the question that has to be asked is, is this the British government uh, basically saying to Brussels, you won't tell us what to do, we'll do what we want to do, because that's our, our, our way of thinking on these matters, or is the DUP putting pressure on the British government uh, to ditch the protocol because they feel that the protocol, albeit that it's a notional border in the Irish Sea, it isolates NI from GB and some DUP people feel that this is another incremental step towards a united Ireland. Is that the case? No, the, the argument that has been developed, the narrative that has been developed around the protocol, conflating it with constitutional issues, is entirely spurious. But the protocol over the course of the last 12 months and more has been weaponized. And, uh, and it's been weaponized in the interests of the Tory right uh, the Tory right wing, the uh, economic research group, which has its own very narrow ideological agenda. And it has been used by the DUP as a proxy to shore up the uh, the loss of its own power uh, in the north of Ireland. The Unionist electoral majority has been eclipsed, was ended since 2017. And now I think what we're seeing is the, the Tories and the DUP playing off against one another with the British government giving cover to the DUP by claiming that there is a political deadlock arising from the existence of the protocol in order to justify the phony war that it is trying to uh, develop and intensify with the European Commission. What's going on in Britain at the moment is all about trying to maintain a Tory party electoral coalition in England. And Ireland is being held as collateral damage in relation to that standoff with the European Union. This is all about trying to paint the European Union up as the bad guy and to maintain tensions and to inflame the situation for an, an entirely ideological and narrow political interests on the part of the Tory right. Okay, well, Declan, the signs are that uh, this proposed legislation will not get passed in the House of Commons. It won't get passed in the House of Lords. So, assuming the bill goes nowhere, you're left with the Northern Ireland Protocol, and the DUP then will still use the existence of the Northern Ireland Protocol not to sit in an executive with Sinn Féin. So, are we facing into a situation uh, whereby there will be no executive at Stormont not so much for the foreseeable future, but we could be looking at another three-year hiatus, as was the case before. Uh, that would be uh, an absolutely terrible prospect to, to contemplate. That's why it's essential that the DUP uh, discontinue their, uh, their veto, uh, lift their veto from the political institutions in the North. Bear in mind that this, uh, this stance that the DUP has adopted goes back to last October when they placed a veto over the operation of the North-South Ministerial Council. Now they have escalated it to put a veto over power sharing in the six counties itself. And all of this is undermining and damaging the Good Friday Agreement, which was the basis of our peace settlement here on the island of Ireland. It's reckless, it's cynical, it's very, very dangerous, and it needs to stop. We need, in the uh, in this period, to have political stability. We need to have effective power sharing in order that we can deal with the, the cost of living pressures that are bearing down on families and workers right across the north of Ireland, to say nothing of the uh, uncertainty that it will cause for local businesses and workers. The reality is that the protocol is working. 
and it can be made to work even better through proper engagement. Okay. Just in the course, just in the course of, of, of the last three weeks, for example, Rightbus, which is a, a very significant manufacturing company in County Antrim, uh, has received onto its order book uh, for a company in Cologne an order of 60 hydrogen buses. The, the National Transport Authority in the 26 counties this week placed an order of 120 fully electric double-decker buses. That's an investment of something in the region of £69 million. Pounds. All of that is placed in jeopardy and the prospects of even greater levels of foreign investment to the north of Ireland is jeopardised by the kind of instability and uncertainty that the position that the DUP are taking at this time. And doesn't it suit the DUP uh, that the Northern Ireland Protocol is in place because the hardliners in the DUP, it, it just they're, they're still in shock after the outcome of the May 5th Assembly elections because for them having to go into an executive where, if you'll pardon my English, Sinn Féin are now the top dogs and this amounts to a seismic shift in the political construct of Northern Ireland that it marks another incremental step towards United Ireland that ultimately it suits the DUP uh, to have this mess going on because they would prefer direct rule from London rather than having to sit down across the table with you guys. Isn't that the case? Uh, certainly. Uh, there are sections of the DUP uh, which we would question um, as to their commitment to the Good Friday Agreement and full-blown commitment to power sharing in itself. These are questions that only the DUP can answer. The, the DUP, remember, opposed the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. They have pushed back against the provisions and the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement over the course of the last 24 years. I think that we're now seeing at this particular stage, uh, as a result of the protocol and past, the outworking of all of that uh, inability to adjust to the all change right. that was guaranteed as a result of the political process in the North, our peace process, and the vision of the Good Friday Agreement itself. Okay. Declan, we're going to have to leave it there. It's something we'll be keeping an eye and an ear on in the uh, weeks and months ahead. That's uh, Declan Carney there, MLA for South Antrim and the Chairman of Sinn Féin. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Thornish de Leo Varadkar announced yesterday that the living wage will be set at 60% of the median wage in any given year, which in 2022 would be €12.17 per hour. The national minimum wage is currently €10.50 per hour. The national minimum wage will remain in place until the 60% living wage is fully phased in in 2026, which seems like a lifetime away when it comes to economics, but will increase over the years as usual, closing the gap between it and the living wage. I hope I haven't confused you there, but basically the government is trying to increase uh, the amount of money that goes into your pocket, particularly if you're a worker or an employee. Uh, Mary Sherlock is the Labour Senator and Spokesperson on Employment Affairs. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the programme. Isn't this good news for workers? Well, good morning to you and and to all your listeners. I I think the, 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 the thing that I took out of yesterday was that the government was committing to um, introducing the living wage when, you know, beyond the lifetime of its term of office. And I think we have to ask very serious questions now about how credible the government is um, 
in terms of its commitment to introducing the living wage in this country. Like, you know, 2026, as you say, is it feels like a lifetime away. And the reality is low-paid workers cannot wait. Um, they can't wait even for a period of a year, let alone four years. And so we've been very clear in the Labour Party. We need to see, in the, in the first instance, an immediate increase to the minimum wage uh, by one euro per hour to bring into 11.50. Um, but we need to see the much more speedier introduction of living wage legislation in this country um, over the next three years. Um, like the reality, as your listeners will know, like we're looking now at rent inflation in excess of 10%. We're looking at food inflation extremely high. Uh, and, and for that inflation to remain um, elevated or, 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 or very high for the foreseeable future, and, and, and it's the lowest paid workers are least able to cope with those cost of living increases. So we're seeing a real lack of urgency on the part of the government and, 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 and to my mind, a profound lack of understanding of the living conditions of low paid workers. Um, to say that they're going to do something in 2026 is, is just simply not on. OK, are you sort of saying that um, Leo Varadkar is trying to woo working class voters to vote for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil uh, by saying, well, look, if you vote for us, you'll get this in 2026. But in the meantime, there is a general election expected in 2025. And to who knows, the composition of the government could be different by then. So in other words, you won't get it in 2026. But if you listen to what we're saying now, um, you know, you will get it in 2026. So vote for us. Don't vote for the others. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it, I, I think most workers looking on would, would say to themselves, you know, if they're to take, you know, anybody who's a low paid worker out there, um, I think would be saying to themselves, look, if, if, if you're taking their concerns seriously, you're not going to be talking about a period of time that that, that feels like an eternity away. Um, and, the, and the reality is that something needs to be done now. Um, like, ultimately, the government can move legislation this year. Um, it can work with employers um, to ensure that uh, that low-paid workers are paid a minimum decent uh, uh, income. And this is, of course, the really important thing, particularly for us in the Labour Party. So while we talk about a living wage, and that's the, the wage per hour, but you know, very few of us know how much we're paid per hour. We all know what we're paid per week, per fortnight or per month. And, it, and so it's the combination of both hours and wages that we need to improve. Like, is in one of the big concerns for me is in terms of you know the the the, the, the large numbers and low in in, in in part-time employment in this country. And while many people want to be in part-time employment, um, others uh, want to move into full-time employment, but are constrained because of childcare, um, because of issues uh, with regards to gain access to those full-time sure. hours. And so we have to look at all those issues. But okay. right here and now, I think p- low-paid workers are saying, well, this government is not taking my concerns seriously. Sure, but they're the, saying we're going to introduce this in four years' time. OK, but Marie, let me put this question to you. Now, you're long enough in the trade union movement. You're long enough in the Labour Party. If somebody listening to this programme uh, said to you, what exactly is the definition of a living wage in the modern economy when we have a cost-of-living crisis? How would you sum it up? So it's it's... Uh, what, what I would say is that a living wage is a minimum essential standard of living. And this has been, uh, and even when I say minimum, like as in, you know, we, we should really be talking about a decent standard of living. But there has been a body of research in this country and in other countries over the last number of years 
that effectively has put together a figure about the minimum hourly rate of pay based on a a full-time working week that a worker needs to survive and have some sort of decent living in this country. And and so the uh, Vincentian Partnership, in in association with other uh, groups, uh, had been working on this for the last number of years. And last year, they came up with a figure of 12.90 per hour, being the minimum hourly pay required, based on the 39-hour week, required to give a worker a decent standard of living. Now, of course, that figure was arrived at last year. And as we all know, we're, we're experiencing inflate, unprecedented inflation that none of us expected uh, since the start of this year. So that figure for 2022 would actually be much higher than 12.90. And so, you know, the, re- the, 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 the issue now is, um, uh, like, there, we have about one in five workers in this country classified as being in low pay. Yeah, just um, can, can I just stop you there, Marie? Because I have to put one final question because we're coming up to news. But haven't we a ridiculous situation in this country where the rate of pay is so low that for some people there's no incentive to take up a job because by the fact uh, that if they take up their job, by the time they pay their taxes and they pay their bus fares or their rail fares, whatever fees they have to pay to get to work, they're actually nearly better off on welfare. Isn't that the case? Well, look, that's been a debate now that's been going on for many years. And we know from the research that that for the vast majority of people who um, are dependent on social welfare, that they would be better off at work. And of course, we have the report from the SRI that came out this past Monday that showed that, uh, you know, employment is the long term and and sustainable route out of poverty. So, but the the key issue now, and, and you rightly point to it, is the cost of transport, the cost of food is certainly making people assess their options. And there's no doubt we have to look at how the social welfare system is built to ensure that people can take up work opportunities. Because what, what I am seeing when I'm out knocking on doors in, in my own constituency in Dublin Central, but certainly talking to others and, you know, my colleague Jed Nash in Louth and, and elsewhere, is that we have people who are on the back to education allowance, who want to work full time during the summer and can't do that um, okay. because of the, uh, well, they feel they can't do that because of the social welfare um, uh, regulations in place. So we need to All see right. a more nimble and flexible social welfare for a system that allows people to take up more hours and is not, um, I suppose, uh, restricted by by certain rules. All right. Marie, we're going to have to leave it there because uh, we're coming up to 10 o'clock news. That's uh, Marie Sherlock there, the Labour Senator and Spokesperson on Employment Affairs. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, comments are coming in thick and fast regarding Navin Hospital. Terry says he agrees with Pather Tobin that the HSE's decision on Navin Hospital is disgraceful. The hospital is vital to the town of Navin and the people of Meath overall. We cannot allow these plans to go ahead. We must fight tooth and nail to retain our services. The Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda cannot cope with the volume of people it has to deal with at the minute. When you add in the extra people, once Navin is downgraded, it will be carnage altogether. Now, uh, I'm about to speak to Dr. Mary Scully, who is a GP with Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. As you know, Dr. Scully is a regular voice here on LMFM and uh, was uh, 
one of our great analysts during the outbreak of COVID-19. But I, I want you to listen to comments made yesterday uh, by the Tonishta Leo Varadkar. It should, of course, be pointed out that uh, Leo Varadkar once worked as a doctor in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda and is very much tuned in to the politics of the health service. No, we don't have uh, Leo Varadkar at this time. We might return to that uh, a little bit later on. Uh, Dr. Mary Scully, thanks for joining us on the programme. Um, what's your reaction to the plans by the HSE, not so much to downgrade Navin Hospital, but to alter the way it functions? Uh, good morning, Ken. Um, yes, I, I know uh, this has been in the, the pipeline for quite some time, ever since the small hospital plans were made in 2013. And Navin actually is the last hospital standing uh, in terms of having uh, an emergency department open. Um, you know, there are arguments for and against this, and I do appreciate that people in Navan are going to be really upset about this, uh, but I would kind of hope that in the end they would be able to see it as possibly being actually an improvement in the service, in fact. Um, but there will need to be some backup in terms of capacity in the Lourdes, and I think that's what Leo Bradker was saying yesterday. They couldn't really institute the changes without being you know, sure that there would be extra capacity in Drogheda to take up this. But it's not, as you say, uh, that, that the emergency department is closing, um, but it is changing. And in fact, the vast majority of patients who currently attend Navin can, in fact, be facilitated by the new changes, which will incorporate a 24-hour medical assessment unit and also a 12-hour local injury unit. And the vast, vast majority of people who currently attend Navin can probably still be attending Navin for those things. What they want in terms of closing the actual emergency department is that those acutely unwell, critically ill patients who now sometimes do arrive in Navin by ambulance um, and there are not the facilities there to really care for them properly. And I think that's kind of the HSE aim is that they would no longer be, you know, there wouldn't be an ambulance service to Navin with acutely ill people. They would instead be diverted to Drogheda. Yeah, Marie, just let me stop you there. Um, As I was saying, the Tornishta and former Minister for Health and himself, a former doctor in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, Dr. Leo Varadkar, spoke yesterday. And this is what he had to say. I, I think um, I think Minister Donnelly's statement today is clear. Uh, you know, the government hasn't sanctioned uh, the closing of the emergency department in Navan. Um, uh, and um, I think there are a lot of questions to be asked about uh, whether that that is, is wise. Um, you know, I, I, I worked in Navan Hospital for a time as a senior house officer. It provided very good care to a lot of people, particularly those, you know, with... Um, pneumonias with minor injuries with uh, UTIs um, provide a very good care uh, I fully appreciate that it's not a major specialist centre and for people who have major trauma who have a heart attack or a stroke it's better that they're taken elsewhere and that is generally done by the ambulance service um, but I think if there's to be any further changes to uh, services at Navin Hospital um, we would need a lot of assurances around the uh, quality of ambulance services in Meath um, and the capacity of uh, hospitals like Drogheda and Connolly to um, uh, take the additional uh, patient load. Uh, and I know Minister Donnelly and Minister McEntee and Mr English and others are, are not satisfied with the HSE's responses to those um, very straightforward and reasonable questions. 
Well, there you have it, uh, Dr. Scully, uh, the Tornister, the uh, man who will take over as Taoiseach in December, saying that the emergency department is not being closed down. And the HSE statement from Monday basically says that all that's going to happen is that some of those admitted to the emergency department in uh, Navan, I think it's 10%, will in turn be transferred to Drogheda. So uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion, a lot of noise, a lot of people under the impression that the emergency department is closing down, but the politicians, and Damien English was on with us here uh, yesterday, he was basically saying the same thing, um, that, um, you know, it's not closing down, and what's all the fuss about? Well, uh, I know there's, there's, I think there's a mismatch between what the HSE are looking to do and what the politicians are willing to sign off on. It's going to be an unpopular move for sure, so... Um, you know, any government undertaking it is not going to find themselves very popular for doing so. Um, and indeed, you know, there was previous problems in Roscommon and the TDs resigning, etc. So, you know, it's not going to be a popular move. But, you know, at the end of the day, like there are there is evidence that people who are critically ill, who are coming to Navan are not best served by it because it is not what is called a level three or four hospital with, you know, acute uh, sort of surgery, uh, you know, ICU, uh, interventional radiology, cardiac services, etc. And people who are acutely, critically unwell would be better served by going to one of those hospitals. But the vast majority of patients, like the ones Leo Radger mentions with their pneumonias and their UTIs and their minor injuries, will still be served by NAVIN. Yeah, so it's not as dramatic uh, as we've been told if the press release from the HSE is anything to go by. But there's one area that is definitely confusing and bothering a lot of people, and it is that uh, access to the medical assessment unit, which they say will operate 24-7, will require GP referral. Now, as uh, somebody uh, texted into us this morning an email from Therese, she said... Where are we going to get a doctor's letter for the MAU after six o'clock in the evening or at weekends? Is this a problem or uh, is what's being proposed properly thought out? Okay, so this is uh, a difficulty, um, in my opinion, because GP services are already extremely stretched. Um, Our waiting list for a routine appointment now are are into a week. um, And, you know, I know North East Dock, I've been talking to them, they're already extremely stretched as well. So this is a little bit of a difficulty. um, And in fact, I spoke to Jerry McEntee, who's the clinical director in Navin, about this very thing yesterday evening. Um, he pointed out that in they took the attendances in the ED in 2019, as in the first the pre the pre COVID times, and he said that actually all, there were roughly 18,000 people attended um, in that year. And when you broke that all down, take out the 10% who really knew were critically ill needed to go elsewhere. You take out the 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 local sort of you know the minor injuries which can go to the LIU, and you also take out the people who had uh, refer- GP referral letters, it left about, uh, by my estimate, about 2,900 who did not have a referral, uh, which breaks down to about 56 a week, which breaks down to about eight per day. So when you, even though it sounds like that it's a big deal, it mightn't in fact turn out to be such a big deal because 
when the MEU was open in Navan, we regularly referred patients and most surgeries, even though their routine appointments might in fact be weeks away, we nearly always do have a facility to see the urgent cases or the you know critically unwell patients who need to be seen on that day will always have appointments set by to see that see them and you know so this is going to need a little bit of work and i know there is going to be liaison between the gps and the hospital services about this very fact to see how it's going to work how it's going to work smoothly um you know and to make it kind of you know a, a service that is going to work for the people in need Okay, but ultimately, uh, Dr. Scully, as far as you're concerned, the HSE is going about this the right way in that it's going to elevate Drogheda as a centre of excellence uh, and that uh, Navin will not in any way be upgraded but will remain as it is but will have expertise in other areas that Drogheda doesn't have and that ultimately what the HSE is ultimately trying to do is manage the resources for the region. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. to put it in a moot point, that is about it. So Navin is not going anywhere. Um, it will have additional services, already has some additional services of a new lab. Uh, they have, you know, a, re- a lovely rehabilitation unit for the elderly. So it's going to be more of an elective hospital with services available, step-down beds, etc. Um, you know, that's going to serve us kind of the less critically unwell. But I asked Jerry McEntee this very question yesterday, could Navin be upgraded to a level three or four hospital? But it's going to be impossible. They, it's too far too small. It's the third smallest co- uh, hospital in the country. You'd need at least 100 extra beds. You'd need emergency surgery. You'd need cardiology, interventional radiology. Um, and it just cannot be done in Navin. You can't have every service in every hospital in the country. And we have to okay. have services in, you know, appropriately um, diverted to the correct uh, region. OK, well, this controversy looks like rumbling on, certainly over the next number of weeks. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Mary Scully there, GP, uh, from the Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, our president, Michael Daniel Higgins, has got himself into a bit of hot water after he spoke at an event in County Kildare yesterday and he slammed the government's housing policy as, quote, a disaster and a great, great failure. Now, some people are saying the president has overstepped the mark. He has, metaphorically speaking, put the boot into the government and normally that's not the way the office of president should work. So the question being asked asked this morning is, has he overstepped the mark? Has he interfered in the workings of our executive, namely the government? There is divided opinion on this this morning. One man who might know is an old friend of mine, former parliamentary correspondent with the Irish Times, but most importantly of all, a proud Kerry man, uh, Michael O'Regan. Thanks for joining us on the programme, Michael. So uh, the question being asked is, has Michael D overstepped the mark? Yeah, good morning, Ken. I, I, I don't think he has, and I'll, I, I'll tell you why. As you know, Ken, from our years in the press gallery observing Michael D. Uh, speaking as um, a TD in that, and indeed as a minister, and earlier as a senator, uh, he's a wily politician. You see, it depends on how you interpret his remarks. Now, implied in it, implied, is criticism of successive governments. Uh, but that's the implication of what he had to say. But if you look at it boldly, what he had to say, uh, he was giving public expression to a reality, something that's a fact of life for many, many people, whether trying to buy a home or renting a home. So it could be argued 
that the president should uh, at times reflect the public mood on issues. Of course, with, now, had he gone further and blamed successive governments, as of course he was implying, but uh, no doubt he would deny that, uh, that would have been, uh, you know, that would have been outside his remit as president. Well, now, you're old enough uh, to remember one or two spats between presidents down through the years. I, I recall some time back that uh, President Mary Robinson, I think, wanted to go to London and attend some event to talk about the North, and Charlie Hawhey stopped her, and there was a bit of uh, a bit of a attention there. And then I think Mary McAleese got her in, herself into some trouble some years back where she said that the treatment of the Jews by the Nazis was similar to the way Protestants treated Catholics. Um, Isn't the problem that sometimes uh, the president, the office of president, makes speeches and that the speeches are not cleared by the government? That's correct. And uh, clearly this speech wasn't uh, cleared by the government. And also, just watching it on television last night, Ken, uh, it's clear that he, in, in the remarks about housing, he departed from his prepared script. Now, he may have had notes or something, but uh, there's no question of this speech being sent to the government to be vetted. And realistically, I suppose, uh, the government would feel if the president is going along to open a housing development, uh, you know, he's unlikely to be controversial. Uh, Now, if it was on a major constitutional issue or something, or on Irish and British relations or some issue like that, the speech would have to be cleared by the government. But, you see, I think it has changed, Ken. I... Uh, the presidency, the presidency essentially is a ceremonial office. Now it has some powers. He can refer bills to the Supreme Court to test their constitutionality. He uh, accepts the resignation of uh, Taoiseach, for instance, and he uh, he gives the seal of office to ministers. He can even refuse, if I recall right, there was a scenario some years back where uh, one of the presidents, it could have been Paddy Hillary, refused to accept a resignation and told the parties to go back and form a coalition. I'm just trying to think who that was. It could have been Paddy Hillary, uh, or indeed it could have been it could have been Mary Robinson, yeah. Yeah, Mary Robinson. Yeah, Uh, no, he has that power as well. Uh, That's unlikely to be used in any kind of regular basis. So, but basically... Those two powers aside, Ken, he's, uh, we're talking about, you know, a ceremonial office, uh, a symbolic office going around the country to meet people, going abroad, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, hence, the president of the day tends to be pretty popular because you're not dealing with, po- with policy where you have to deliver. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a, a very generally well-liked public figure, you know, going Croke Park and All-Ireland and all that kind of thing. Uh, but... I think in Michael D's case, uh, it would have been very naive to assume that uh, he was going to be this uh, revered old gentleman up in the Aris, uh having tea with ICA groups and social groups and community groups and all that kind of thing. Uh, he was bound to speak out occasionally. But I do think that if you look at where he appeared uh, to have gone outside the remit of the office, if you actually look at what he said, in terms of the interpretation of, interpretation of what he said, it could be argued that he was in uh, the remit uh, 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 of the office. Now, that is very, very cute politics, uh, which, of course, given his experience, uh, you know, he's, he's capable of. Yes. The other thing Ken here is, 
The whole thing has changed as well in terms of uh, people now are grappling with the cost of living, they're grappling with housing and health. These are the big issues. And I think most of the general public would give short shrift to any minister who might decide, very unlikely, but he might decide or she might decide to put their head above the parapet and criticise the uh, president. Uh, you know. Well, now, just it, let me... Just let, yeah, just let me put <clears throat> two contrasting views here. Uh, this is a quote from the Irish Examiner this morning. Sean O'Connell, a law lecturer at University College Cork, said there was a very strong case that Mr Higgins overstepped the mark yesterday with his comments about the housing crisis. And yet Fergus Finlay, who, as you know, uh, is a Labour man to the bone, having been tarnished, sorry, an advisor to former Tornish to Dick Spring, uh, he said last night that my Michael D. did not criticise the government. He didn't criticise a political party. He didn't criticise a department. He didn't criticise a minister. So on that basis, he hadn't overstepped the mark. Isn't the problem sometimes that the office of the president functions in a number of grey areas? Absolutely. And the constitution is grey, you know, on it as well. Um, and I would, I would be inclined to agree with what Fergus Finlay had to say there, in that uh, there was no criticism of politicians, no criticism of the current government. Anyone who looks at the housing situation at the moment uh, would blame successive governments uh, over the years. Uh, and you see, uh, as well, it could be argued that if um, there is a social malaise surrounding something as basic as housing, which there is, uh, the president, you know, who's leader of the people, I suppose, uh, should give expression uh, to that concern about that malaise. And I think that's what he was doing. Well, can I put the point to you that, as you know, um, Michael D. Higgins uh, is a former Labour TD. He thinks with a sort of a socialist mindset. And it's Fine Gael and it's Fianna Fáil and the Greens who are in office at the moment. Do you think that if Labour were in government at present, um, he would have been as forceful in his comments as he was yesterday? That's a good question uh, and a fair question. I, I suspect he might have been, you know, in that... Um, when the president, uh, nominated by Labour and all that, but you then go to Aris, nominated by a political party, but you then go to Aris and on, and you, you're meant to be above politics in your own person and all that kind of thing. Uh, I think that uh, Michael D uh, would probably have said the same thing if Labour wasn't power, and that would be a, a rap on the knuckles for Labour. By the way, Ken, in fact, he said uh, yesterday, Labour didn't escape, because if you look at, um, you can't blame the present government entirely for the housing crisis. This is a failure over several governments. And that would, in, would include governments uh, where Labour was involved. So from that point of view, no political party in power in recent years escaped by implication uh, well, of course, Eamon Gilmore got absolutely uh, hammered over the positions that uh, Labour took in relation to things like water charges and so on. So Labour is not immune from criticism uh, based on its past. Absolutely not. And if you look at the cynicism of the Labour campaign in 2011, which later 
yielded them a bitter electoral harvest. You know, they lost seats. They're, they're now a small, proliferative party. On 4%, uh, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, that relates to the promises they made in that election, where, it, remember the phrase, Weber's way or Frankfurt's way. In other words, we'll tell Europe uh, we're not paying back the money. You yeah, and, and we uh, did. And we did, and we did. And Labour knew when they made that bogus and quite cynical promise, they knew we would. Mm. I'm just wondering, uh, Michael, you know, since Mary Robinson, well, let me go back prior to Mary Robinson taking office in 1990, the office of president was generally sort of seen as being what some people refer to as a retirement home for seasoned politicians. But when Mary Robinson came in in 1990, it sort of, took the cobwebs off Oris and Uchtaron and she became more visible and more vocal. I'm just wondering that despite the fact that Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese and Michael D now are more, as I say, visible and vocal in the office, is it time to review the section in the Constitution that deals with the office of president so that if the president represents all of the people and he or she has something on their chest that they want to say that they should be allowed to say it or should the constitutional section dealing with the office of president remain the way it is? I think it should remain the way it is because um, there's always the possibility that down the road you could have somebody who mightn't fully understand the constitutional implications of what he or she might be saying. Now, I'm not suggesting that would happen, but it is a possibility. Uh, So what's there at the moment is um, a barrier to a president becoming very, very directly involved in politics. Uh, But the point you made there about uh, up to Mary Robinson in 1990, it was a sinecure for Fianna Fáil politicians. Uh, Mind you, times were changing. If we go back to 1966, de Valera uh, seeking a second term beat Tom O'Higgins of Fine Gael by only a margin of 10,000 votes despite the fact that it was the 50th anniversary of the Rising. And uh, then Yudarskin Childers and others. Uh, but Mary Robinson changed everything. And also, of course, the first woman president. Uh, also, we're in a different society now, more educated, more outspoken. And more media, uh, of course. And more precisely, more media, social media. For instance, I don't think Charlie Howe would get away, if you're around today and Mary Robinson was president, I don't think he'd get away with banning Mary Robinson from going abroad to make a speech, because uh, there would be huge criticism of him. Uh, one of the civil servants who worked with Albert Reynolds uh, told me that in his early days, in Albert's early days as Taoiseach, he said uh, there would be no rows or confrontations with Mary Robinson because she was too popular with the people. And Albert was a wise and clever politician. Yeah, yeah. Um, just one final question, um, Michael, and I suppose it, it raises the question again that you have a situation this morning where people in Sinn Féin are saying that what the president said was right. You have uh, Michael McDool saying, yeah, what he said was right, but he shouldn't have said it. Uh, this then raises the question as to when and where the president can say what he wants when he's reflecting the feelings of of the Irish people. So I'm just wondering, you know the way the Council of State is like an advisory body to the President. Uh, Is it time for some sort of a a new committee to be formed to effectively vet speeches in advance so that they don't step over the line? I don't think so, because I I think that could become unworkable. 
uh, eventually. And I think the Council of State there is to advise him on, uh, you know, the constitutional matters, yeah. bills and that. But um, I also think that with, with somebody like Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese and Michael D. Higgins, there are times when they're going to push the boundaries a bit. And that's probably no bad thing. Uh, you know, rather than, as I say, drinking endless cups of tea with community groups and that kind of thing. But um, it keeps the government on their toes as well, doesn't it? It keeps it keeps the government on their toes. And if you go back, uh, uh, Ken, to the original point I made there about if the president of the day is to reflect society, Irish society at the time, then uh, issues like health and housing uh, demand some kind of public reference. Sure. Okay, listen, Michael, we're going to have to leave it there. It's good to talk to you again after quite a long time. We must meet up for a chat and uh, express our views on how the nation is going. And as I say, we'll have you back on the programme again. That's uh, Michael O'Regan there, former parliamentary correspondent with the Irish Times, now, um, now an analyst on political events in this country. We have more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sandra was in touch from Drogheda and she says, as someone from the town, I am all too familiar with Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. I'm very grateful to have it on our doorsteps, but I'm horrified to think that more patients are going to be heaped on this hospital through the downgrading of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Linda in Navan says, well done, Padre Tobin. He's the only one making sense and the only one that's fighting tooth and nail to save the A&E in the town. Sean from Navan was in touch. He said, if the necessary capacity is not in place at Our Ladies of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda uh, to take the extra patients from Navan, why did the HSE make the announcement? It's all very strange, especially as the date of June 30th seems to have been mentioned as this uh, is coming into effect at one stage and now that's been dismissed. Yes, that's a very interesting question, Sean, and uh, we did make the point and indeed I think the HSE have some questions to answer uh, about the way they've managed this. Uh, but moving on, if you're a motorist like myself, you will have noticed that the price of petrol and diesel has already passed the two euro threshold. I saw petrol yesterday for two euro and fifteen cent, diesel for two euro and five cent, and uh, motorists are really being squeezed at the pumps. One man who can give us some analysis as to where we're at is uh, Drogheda Man and head of communications with AA Ireland, Paddy Common. Uh, Paddy, first of all. Uh, the increase in the cost of petrol and diesel, um, are we near a peak or is it going to climb higher and higher? I'd love to say we are near a peak, Ken, but it doesn't look likely at the moment. We are on a, a trajectory which could end up um, being, and someone, you know, I'm not the only one who thinks that, but it could end up being towards €2.50 a litre for petrol. Over the last two weeks alone, we've seen an increase of over 11%. Just, just in the last two weeks. So the average now across the country for petrol is €2.13, which is 41% more expensive than last year. And diesel has now gone up 5.6% in the last two weeks, up from 194 to €2.05 on average nationally, which is 45% more expensive than last year. So quite a leap. Is this all down to the war in Ukraine? It's a factor, yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, the overarching reason for it is is the war in Ukraine, and that has had various knock-on effects. Various countries are backing away now from taking Russian oil, which, um, in particular, diesel fuel, you know, we, we relied on quite a lot in Europe. Now, the result of backing away from that is that there are 
and now fewer oil refineries being um, called into action and they are now making multiples of profits. So, you know, an emerged a BBC report had shown that they are now uh, earning seven, eight, nine times the profit on uh, refining the fuel than they were a year ago. So that plays a role. And obviously, domestically, we have our taxes. Our, Ireland is, is particularly... Um, you know, prone to the taxation of the of fuel, and the government at the moment there's an estimate that they're taking in an additional 25 million euro per month just on fuel because of of uh, of the increase in price because of VAT, obviously. So they are uh, they are earning an awful lot more money as a result of these increases. Well, on that very point, do do you have a breakdown of how much tax uh, is going to the government on a liter of diesel, a liter of petrol, and indeed home heating oil? Yeah, it varies. It varies often between the, the, the price, but it's, it's between fifty and sixty percent. Uh, it's you know it can be be that high, and and that's a huge figure. And that you know for for we're not the we're not the highest figure across the world, but we are right up there in the top ten. And um, there's no doubt they you know we we in AA and, and sort of various commentators been saying, look, we understand that the government can't continuously chase inflation in terms of making reductions and they did give a concession for uh, duty uh, recently but it was absolutely quickly swallowed up but w- the, the difficulty is and it, it's 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 fine to a degree if you're in Dublin city centre and you can jump on a Lewis or a Dart or take a cycle lane but if you're in more rural areas the viable alternatives to your car are not always there and it, you know, it's that's the difficulty, Ken, is that there aren't always the options for people. And these prices, uh, you know, an average car now, a very average car to fill now is is 108 euro for a tank of petrol, and that for a lot of people who just are dependent on the car is choking them. Um, carbon taxes, I think, were introduced on the first of May. Is there any data coming to light that suggests that uh, motoring? Uh, habits or trends have changed to try and reduce um, motoring journeys uh, in the hope of getting emissions down or has the carbon tax made any difference whatsoever other than just uh, filling up the coffers of the Department of Finance? Again, and I said I I hate to labour the point, there has been a, a, a jump in in you know in public transport services where it's available and and the the recent reduction of twenty percent on travel fares has been welcomed and that has had the effect uh, certainly where where it's there but you know we we only just released details of survey today which shows that some people are now obviously starting to walk a little bit more take uh, take you know cycle a little bit more but also the same survey showed that that over 40% said that the fuel prices are now affecting the way they spend money on their weekly food shopping. So, you know, it, it's, it is getting to a point where something has to give. If people can't, have to use their cars, they can't jump on another public transport network. Sure. And they're now looking at what how their food shopping is yeah. affected. Just, just two more questions, Paddy, before I let yeah. you go. I mean, how are petrol and diesel prices in Ireland comparing with other EU countries, or do you have those figures? Yeah, we would have. We're we're right up there near the top now. There are slightly more expensive countries, like for example, the UK is, is more expensive marginally at the moment, but countries like France and Spain are considerably cheaper. So we we are right at the top of the list. Um, not the most expensive in Europe, but right up there at the top of the chart. 
Right, that doesn't sound good. Just one final question. I think uh, Joe Biden and his officials are in talks with the Saudis like never before. Are there any signs that the uh, the OPEC countries in the Middle East are going to increase output, which in turn would help to bring down the pro- the price of petrol and diesel at the pumps? This has been talked about for a long time, Ken, because the production went absolutely through the floor during COVID uh, restrictions and it never hasn't still hasn't reached the levels that it was pre-COVID. So there is an effort to increase production, will, which is very much needed uh, to reduce these prices because, uh, you know, as, as we said, something has to give. So so we can be hopeful that that will, that will happen in, in, in the next coming months because it, it's, it's much needed. Okay, Paddy, just to conclude, just to repeat what you said at the top of the interview, the signs are that this is going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, I mean, given the trajectory at the moment, it, it, I think people would need to brace themselves for that. And, I, and of course, just look, take any measures you can to, to reduce your fuel costs. And, you know, obviously reducing the speed, especially in motorways, does help. I know people don't necessarily like to hear it, but um, people do need to start now looking at, at ways they can um, save and conserve fuel. Okay, we leave it there. That's uh, Paddy Common, who is the head of communications with the Automobile Association office here in Ireland. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. A new survey has revealed that three quarters of those who have relocated across Ireland are under 40 years of age and have a higher level of formal education. It's one of the many statistics emerging from the third annual National Remote Working Survey, which shows that coastal counties are the preferred location for those considering relocating. I'm joined on the line right now by Deirdre Frost, who is a policy analyst with the Western Development Commission. Uh, Deirdre, talk us through these figures. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, um, this is the some of the results of the third annual National Remote Work Survey, which we actually published about a month ago. But what we've done in this publication is a new analysis specifically on focusing on examining those people who actually relocated or we would consider relocating on account of remote working and COVID. So that. The first survey we did was, uh, the published survey was a full overview of the results. Here we're honing in on those people, which is about 10% of the survey population, who said they have have already relocated or indeed about 30, 30% or more who would consider relocating on account of re- remote working and COVID. And I suppose the results here were particularly interesting in that when you look at those people who actually have relocated, there's a certain profile compared to the general population or indeed the survey population, which, as you say, um, they're generally younger. Uh, they're generally more educated than those who repl- replied to the survey in general. Um, and I suppose in terms of the patterns of relocation, what we see is there's a huge outflow from Dublin, um, mainly Dublin and also, to a lesser extent, Dublin or Galway and Cork, which would be, I suppose, the more populated counties. And a distribution of all of those 10% of workers across the country. So every county received new residents due to relocation from remote working, um, whereas most of them have left the larger urban centres. And well, I mean, uh, if I can just sorry. take you up on that, I mean, I'm just looking at your press release here. Something like 63% of those that have relocated have left Dublin. Is it because the cost of living in Dublin is just out of control? Or is it a case of the jobs are in the west or in the south? Or is it there's a new thinking about lifestyle? 
I think it's probably a combination of all three, all three factors that you mentioned, but probably the most significant one is is the first one in terms of the cost of living. Although, to be fair, we didn't ask about housing housing prices, but we did ask, were you more likely to rent or home home ownership? And of those who, who relocated, more than rented then owned their own home. So maybe that's an indication that they have a higher degree of mobility. I would say the remote working aspect is a key part. So during COVID, people had to where they could remote work due to government guidance. So potentially if you had if you had good enough broadband you could work from Galway even if your job was still in was still in um Dublin. And the same is true for you could work anywhere across the country which might explain why every county received new residents. I think the really interesting question would be when we do the survey next year, to what extent there's still continuing growth and people relocating, or is there a reversal of the pattern, or are they moving, are people who are relocating who can remote work, are they moving to new destinations? Yeah, um, uh, well, or, well, just on that very point, um, have you found that as broadband is rolled out and the penetration of broadband increases with the passing of time, that the very fact that people can work from Mayo or Cork or Galway and feed into Dublin, uh, is that contributing to the increased numbers of people who are leaving Dublin, for example, to work in the regions? I mean, it, it's hard to say. The, the National Broadband Plan is being rolled out and, as you say, broadband is getting better. I think the key, the key aspect is, one, having good broadband and, two, having a job in which you can remote work and maybe, three, having a job in which your employer will let you remote work a lot of the time. And I know government is bringing forward legislation looking at that possibility of being able to remote work as a right, especially where you can. I would say that while the numbers leaving Dublin or the proportions leaving Dublin are massive, they're actually, c- compared to the overall, they're actually distributed right, right across the co- county, or country rather. So it's, it's and, and the numbers that are leaving Dublin relative to the, po- to the population size in Dublin is actually still very small compared to the impact of people moving to a lower populated county, for example, in the Midlands, um, would be very small in the grand scheme of things. But it's still a new phenomenon, I think, that we haven't seen before, whereby remote working is allowing people to relocate across the country. Um, I've been watching this series on TG Kahar with uh, my old friends in Dundara TV are making called uh, Moving West. Um, Of those that have moved west from the east, we'll say to Mayo or to Galway or to Kerry or Clare, um, is it all working out to be a positive experience? Oh, I think definitely, largely so. I mean, again, COVID would have been a key factor in in helping some of those people make the decision, but there were many other reasons why they would have made and continue to make that decision. Lifestyle is a key factor, cost of living, etc., quality of life. Um, And I would say... And no traffic. And no, and no traffic. Although, although I live in Galway and we have we have traffic problems here too. I mean, I would say that the relocation data we've published today shows that actually they're relocating everywhere across the country. Like I said, although obviously the TG Cahar focus program that we're doing um, is focusing on the experience of people in the West, um, and ultimately it's all those mix of. Cost of living, no traffic, no commuting, um, good quality broadband, access to services, and and the, the the balance of life and work is really important in terms of people's 
view on on how to continue living. And I suppose COVID was it was a, a check on what people should prioritise and how they ca- can prioritise things. Okay, well, that's a, a very interesting survey. Obviously, there's a lot of change going on uh, in this country with people moving from one side of the country to the other. Thanks for indeed uh, for joining us this morning. That's Deirdre Frost, who is the policy analyst with the Western Development Commission. Just one or two comments before we go. Regarding Navin Hospital, a caller was in touch to say he was brought to Navin Hospital critically ill some time ago, and he says his life was saved by staff at Our Lady's Hospital if he had to travel to Drogheda, Mullingar or Blanchettstown for treatment. He says he is in no doubt that he would have not survived. Regarding President Higgins, Michelle was in touch to say President Higgins was perfectly right in what he said. He's a brilliant man and tells it like it is, which Michelle greatly admires. He's a wonderful president. And an issue we've been dealing with over the last few days, littering in Drogheda. Stephen is disgusted that his hometown has been named as one of the dirtiest towns in Ireland. Action is needed to tackle this problem immediately. You see these road sweeping machines all over the town but there is not much work being done to physically remove the litter. And that's just some of your comments on our programming this morning. We're back again tomorrow morning. I want to thank Maggie McGuire and Marie Cairns who put the programme together. Chris Murray was on sound. Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray and I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning just after the 9 o'clock news. Until then, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.